Hey everyone, just wanted to get ahead of this episode as always to remind people that this episode will contain adult language and adult themes. In addition, I will be talking about cultures that I have not been raised in, and in no way is this meant to belittle, quantify, or take light of other traditions. If there are any concerns, or if I've said something wrong, please feel free to reach out to me, and I would love to start an open dialogue. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to the final of the trilogy of the Sadie Hawkins Monster Mash, The After Party. Here we're going to get down and dirty with some different monsters from the first nine Final Fantasy games and a, just a huge smattering of yokai. I'm ready if you are. Let's dive in and just get this show on the road. Hello everybody, welcome back. Uh, this, as always, is your host Drew, the millennial with a history degree, and uh, I'm shaking it up a bit today. And uh, no, this isn't because I spent far too much time playing uh, Tears of a Kingdom and didn't have enough time to do proper podcast research. It turns out most of my encyclopedias just kind of suck, and that's something I'm going to have to deal with. Uh, originally, um, I was going to stick with my standard rule of threes, and I was going to have some Hindu mythology today, but um, instead I'm going to do Hindu mythology as parts of different episodes, because there weren't many monsters, and it I go out of my way not to include deities in this list, because to make a deity monstrous is extremely problematic, and, you know... I don't have that kind of power, I'm not the Catholic Church, but barrel. Uh, so what I have for you today is just a whole smattering instead of only two traditions today. So we're going to juxtapose the remaining female yokai from the uh, my big source, the Japanimodium, the uh, compiled and translated works of Toriyama Sekian. Um, to the female monsters from the first nine Final Fantasies. Um, yeah, I know it sounds weird that it's the first nine, but I only have the first two Ultimania archives, and for some of the games there's only like one or two that felt like enough to cover, so thus, nine. Um, in terms of the Final Fantasy monsters, I also didn't cover uh, things that either I had already covered, like I wasn't going to cover Medusas again, um, I wasn't. I covered Kidna last week, and little things like that. Also, um, generic enemies that are just swordswoman and sorceress. Like, where do you even begin? Um. So I hope you guys. Um. This little shakeup in the format doesn't throw everybody off, and um, let's uh get right into it. I think I'm going to start with the Final Fantasy monsters this week. Okay, so with the Final Fantasy monsters, um, the way my notes worked, because I pulled all this information from a combination of the first two Ultimaria archives, and then um, a little digging around um, on either the, um, what's it called, Final Fantasy wiki, and you know, just some, also some tertiary Googling. Um, so this is going to be an order by game. And um, also, I probably should mention I should apologize in advance. I'm trying something new, and I'm recording in the morning. So my voice probably sounds a smidge deeper, because I got that sultry morning voice. And 
also I haven't had any coffee yet, so there's gonna be a lot more ums and like three second pauses for my brain to start. But here we go. So the first of our itinerary today is the Marolith from Final Fantasy One. Also, I probably should mention uh, spoilers for the first nine Final Fantasies because a bunch of these are bosses. Um, you've been warned. I don't have timestamps because I'm not that put together. I'm sorry. Uh, the first one, Maralith, is from Final Fantasy One. This is the fiend of fire who appears in Mount Gulud. This is a woman who has a snake. Who's like part upper half is woman, bottom half is snake, but she has six arms that cur hold large scimitars. Um, for you Bloodborne fans out there, think Murgo's wet nurse if the bottom half was snake and the, you know, head wasn't so fucked up. Um, as one of the fiends, she is one of the bosses protecting the crystals, specifically the fire crystal. Um, you have to fight her once so you can get back the fire crystal. And then in the chaos shrine at the end of the game, you have to fight a stronger version of her because there's some weird time travel mumbo jumbo bullshit in Final Fantasy 1 where you have to go defeat the fiends before they make contracts with the big bad so that they can't send him back in time to just keep looping the events over and over again. Um, and the fun thing is is she's called in the Kari room, um, which some people believe is a mistranslation of Kali, which is a destruction deity from Hindu myth. Snuck it in. Um, and you can kind of see in her character designs when she's holding scimitars, she's got a sort of Indian feel to her. She's got six arms that she, there's probably some Hindu mythology kind of sprinkled in here. Uh, the second one on our list, there's, there's quite a bit. I use, when I'm taking notes, I just do, you know, alphanumerics uh, for us uh, super nerdy ones. And I go up to Q, so there's a lot of enemies here. Uh, but the next one is from Final Fantasy 2. This is the Vampire Girl. Um, this is your, you know, whatever you immediately thought of a vampire woman, you're probably right. This is a standard, your run-of-the-mill European vampire. Uh, her big thing is that she's kind of a roadblock if you try to get to the area of Mysidia too early. Uh, she's the one who can just, you know, one-shot your team pretty fucking easily. Uh, she also uses Charm 6, which is a fun little thing. Um, I'm definitely going to have to do a mini-series on vampires at some point because A, they're my favorite fucking monster thing. Like, if I had to go and specialize in one monster, if I, you know, went if I go and do further degreeing and it's time for my PhD and they're like, okay, you can't just PhD in monsters, you got to pick a specific one, it would be vampires. Like, I'd get my PhD in vampires. Uh, so the fun thing about charm is you kind of have, in a lot of it's, um, this sort of ability to seduce, to pull a glamour on, to make people, to entice victims to them, and thus, a lot of times you'll find vampires with like charm abilities, or something that has like glamour, and uh, it's just a fun little side of vampire lore. We're gonna get a lot deeper into it. Um, not the next episode, but the after episode after, I think I'm gonna do 
a big uh, thing about a, cer- a specific vampire. So uh, stay tuned for that little spoiler. Uh, next enemy, also from Final Fantasy 3, is the Lamia Queen. Um, we talked a little bit about Lamia in the Greco-Roman part of last episode. You know, half snake, half queen, harkens back to Lamia, who was a queen of Africa who was seduced by uh, Zeus. Um, every myth I've found says she was a willing participant, at least, which is a lot more than what you can say for most of Zeus's conquests. Um, not like that time he came up as a golden shower to make Perseus. And that's not a euphemism. It's actually a shower of gold, not fucking water not water sports what's the other one piss play it's not piss play um and Hera being pissed off that uh, big surprise her husband's fucking around again turned her into a half snake half woman who eats babies uh in the final fantasy 2 she is the boss fight at Altair and then when you get into the final area uh pandemonium uh, she's just a regular ass enemy which is always a mechanic I really loved in JRPGs when they do that shit, where you go and you're fighting, you have this like really bo- tough boss enemy, and early on, and you get that kind of thrill of being able to just finally beat it, and then near later on in the game, in a lot later dungeons, when your party is all souped to hell and you min-max the shit out of everything, and you just run into regular ones to remind you to be like, Remember back when you were so weak, this was a challenge, and look how much you've grown that now this is just an insignificant speck on your journey. I think it's a fun little thing. Next, we have, from Final Fantasy III, the Konichi. Uh, This is a term used for a female ninja. Um, It's uh, sometimes believed that the reason they're named this is from the three strokes that are used to make the Japanese word for um, woman. And it's like ko, ni, and then she. Uh, this was popularized by the person Yamada Futaro in 1964 in a novel. Uh, in Final Fantasy III, this is a boss who can use multiple attacks on each turn, but defeating her gets you the best katana in the game, the Masamune. Uh, a little bit of Japanese history here that I just I'm not going to get perfect and I apologize uh, Masamune was a very is often equated with various swords and such in these types of Japanese games because it's believed uh, Masamune I can't remember if they were a real person or not I only know the folkloric tales about them that they were a very powerful blacksmith and it's those types of stories about like swords that are so powerful that they can cut through like various things. Like there's Masamune, and then he had this rival, and they had each made a sword, and they were trying to say which sword is the more powerful one. So they both went to a tree, and they're just like whoever can cut like the most leaves or cut like the proper leaves wins. And the rival, you know, swung his sword and he sliced the tree in half. And it's like, haha, beat that. And then Masamune swung his sword and it only chopped the leaves that were meant to be sw- cut. And they're just like, that's not very strong. It didn't cut the tree in half. It's like, no, but it takes real power to know to show restraint and cut what you're fucking meant to cut. 
And, uh, yeah, that's probably a terrible butchering of that. Um, the only thing I can liken it to is, uh, this is gonna be showing my nerd card. Uh, in One Piece, back when I read One Piece, because I can't be bothered with it anymore, I'm sorry. It's over. It Just find the fucking treasure already. It's been a thousand chapters. <laughs> but when I was reading it, when I started reading One Piece, they were in the Alabasta section, which was is my favorite, because I love faux Middle Eastern settings. I think the aesthetic's very pretty. Um, it's why I love the Gerudo areas in Breath of the Wild. And Tears of the Kingdom, too. That's what I was working on yesterday. And um, in that section, you have the swordsman and Zoro, and there's a whole thing about the power to cut steel. And it's kind of like the self... It's like if you rub your sword against a tree, the power to cut what you want to cut. So if you, like, rub your sword against some leaves and the leaves don't cut, then you, you know, you gain the self-control that you can your sword can cut whatever you want it to. And it's kind of like that. And uh, when I was playing uh, Cavalcade of Tales Bingo at home, uh, tangent within the first 15 minutes can be uh, marked off your daughter. Uh, the next is another Final Fantasy III enemy. This is the Cloud of Darkness. Uh, this is uh, a bit cheeky because it's the final fucking boss. Uh, she wishes to cloak the world in darkness. Um, she doesn't actually appear much in the game herself. Uh, she doesn't arrive until you beat who you think is the enemy, who's a guy named Zand. I think that's how you say it. And uh, it's very interesting because she has this fun little uh, thing where you have to free all the warriors of dark before you can fight her. Because if you don't, she has a, a uh, max defense stat that you can't beat. It just makes, like, if you go into her fight without releasing all of the Warriors of Dark, you can't actually beat her. Like, they'll, her defense stat is maxed until you do it. And I always find, like, some little things, like, there's always, like, everybody talks about the little cheeses that you can do to defeat bosses easily but sometimes i like the little things where it's like no you got to do this and you got to do this properly or you're gonna you're gonna be fucked our next one is a monster that everybody's relatively familiar with uh the mermaid oh this is another final fantasy 3 enemy this is a half woman half fish uh the fun thing about mermaids is that they can be helpful or harmful based entirely on their mood or whoever's telling the story um, they can be omens of shipwrecks, and, uh, sometimes just kill sailors for fun. Uh, but they also can, uh, uh, call upon other animals to help and, uh, get them safely to different locations. Um, the fun thing about the Japanese mermaid is that, um, they're kind of revered, um, as, like, the double-sided curse of immortal immortality. Because consuming mermaid flesh means that you become immortal and there's this little tale about a girl and her dad went on a fishing trip and during the fishing trip they caught this really weird looking fish and people are like we probably shouldn't eat that um but the man pockets like a handful of the meat just to take in case he needs something to eat on his journey home like as a last resort 
but he makes it home finally so he's like what you get me what you get me he's like uh i got you this fun fish jerky and his daughter eats it not realizing that it's mermaid flesh and then she is cursed with immortality so she just stay like she still grows older but she's forced to watch everyone she's ever known love and die around her and it's said that she lived for like eight or hundred nine years um because it, what people don't like to realize is uh immortality is a curse nobody wants to live forever next uh we're moving on to final fantasy 4 we got a few of these ones uh the first one is barbaricia this is one of the uh, four elemental lords serving the main villain, Golbez. Uh, she is the wind elemental lord and is only uh, really defeated um, by uh, one of your party members, Kane, who is a dragoon. And uh, dragoon are famous for their jump ability. And so since he's able to jump over her wind barriers, he's able to you know, incapacitate her to a point where the rest of the party can beat her ass. And once defeated, uh, she tries to uh, be like, well, fuck all y'all, and destroy the Tower of Zot, which is where her entire battle is. And I was like, and I was like, whoops. Next, uh, we have Leshy. Uh, also from Final Fantasy IV. Leshy, it's a little weird with this one, because in the game, Leshy are like forest sprites. Um, but traditionally, Leshy is a Slavic forest spirit um, who makes travelers lose their way in the forests and protects the wildlife. Uh, they're traditionally male, uh, and they might be even like a sort of like down the line evolutionary chain of the Slavic god Porwit. Um, the best thing I can find is that there's probably the fact that Final Fantasy actually uses takes the form closer to uh, Leshy has a wife and kids, and his wife's name is Lashakia, and I'm I think that's the form they had Leshy do. Either that, or they're just kind of pulling from this forest spirit mythos. Next is the Magus sisters. Uh, this is a trio of witch sisters named Mindy, Cindy, and Sandy. Uh, they are the one of the roadblocks to getting to Barbaricia and the Wind Tower. Uh, they have a special ability called the Delta Attack, which uh, is where Sandy casts Reflect on Cindy, and then Mindy casts a Fire Attack at Cindy, which bounces back and attacks your party. It was such a monumental and interesting thing that hadn't been done before in Final Fantasy that now the... Uh, colloquially among players uh, a delta attack is when you reflect and then uh, use an ability on the person who has reflect on them to attack the opposite player which is very interesting alright we got a couple more for Final Fantasy 4 the next one is Arachne half woman half spider uh, the depiction is very similar to the Joroguma which I believe we covered in the first episode of various lady monsters series um however uh this the name harkens to a greek myth so arachne the story of arachne and it's the story the creation myth for spiders as a whole is that uh once upon a time uh, there was a woman named arachne who was uh touted as the best weaver of all time uh, which is a big thing for the greeks 
because there's two things a Greek woman is supposed to do in the eyes of the Athenian court, and that's to shut up and be in her room weaving, because the Athenians, not exactly first wave feminists, or any wave feminists. Aristotle had some real fucking messed up shit to say about women too, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, so Athena, as one of the uh, one of her purviews of wisdom, is weaving. So she's like, "Well, clearly this woman can't weave better than a god." So she challenges Arachne to a weaving contest, and Arachne wins, uh, based off of the votes. And um, in a fit of uh, poor sportsmanship, um, Athena's like, "Fine, you want to weave forever? I, I can make it so you weave forever." And Arachne is transformed into a spider. And forever weaving webs. Uh, in terms of the monstrous Arachne, which is the giant half-woman, half-snake creature, sometimes uh, they're depicted as the one guarding the uh, tapestry of fate, which is um, where the fates have every single... Harken back to episode one. Um the fates have everything marked and everybody's path for life uh she's a bit sassy in um hercules the animated series um which i will never let die and i will always reference whenever i can if i'm talking about greek myth because arachne is in that series and she's the one who guards the, the tapestry of fate and uh, hercules and icarus are trying to fuck with the Tapestry of Fate so that they can get concert tickets. And then, of course, everything gets fucked up and shenanigans ensue. But, yeah, Arachne. <laughs> Alright, the next one. I'm already losing the plot. This is so bad. I've only got like 25 minutes in. Alright, the next one is the Queen of Eblin. Uh, so one of the party members that you meet during your adventures in Final Fantasy IV is a, is a ninja named Edge, who is actually the prince of a small nation known as Eblin, who was attacked by Golbez and the Elemental Lords. So what happens is, and he, specifically the Fire Elemental Lord is his big fucking beef, uh, his parents were kidnapped by Dr. Lugie, Lugie, Lugie? L-U-G-A-E, Lugie? I'm gonna call him Dr. Lugie. And unfortunately, what he does is he transforms the queen, king and queen into monsters, which is uh, a bit shit and uh, very traumatizing for the ninja for obvious reasons. Uh, the queen herself, in depiction, she is a large head with wings and horns, and she's on a serpentine body. Um, the fun little thing, and for those who are trying to get through Final Fantasy IV, here's a little cheat for you. The boss fight between the king and queen of Eblin is entirely scripted and telegraphed, so you can literally just hit def have all your players defend the entire time, and eventually what will happen is that they will recognize their son and be like, you're king now, there's nothing we can do, and we want to die before we fully become monsters, and then they'll both just self-destruct. Which is, like, a bit sad. Alright, next Final Fantasy V. Uh, we've got, the first one is Medusa, 
this is one of the bosses who you have to fight and she is a huntress hunting down princess lena to get her in the windrake and they want the bounty that's on the princess's head um she usually starts off with some good fighting but then uh she summons her husband forza and then she transitions from just full-blown attacks on the party to buffing her husband, healing him, and doing like debuffs on the party, like poison and uh, drain effects. Kind of fun little side note because she's she's the magic and he's the brawn. Uh, Magisa is a Greek word meaning sorceress. So there's a fun little thing there. The next one is Melusine. This is a, uh, in Final Fantasy, she's a woman entangled with uh, demons and dragons. She is the boss of the Guardian Tree area in Final Fantasy V, after completing the um, Pyramid of Moor. And she's the first of the demons of the rich that the party has to deal with. She's actually, however, based on a female freshwater spirit who inhabits wells and really likes holy wells. And she's kind of mermalian in a way because she's again half woman half fish and sometimes she's half snake and it, she's got one of those interesting stories because originally her story is best known from this 14th century french work where she is cursed by her mother and in order to find the best husband they can for her she's just like you cannot you have to turn to a snake every saturday until you find a husband that respects your privacy so what happens is, is she marries the nobleman Radomin, Raymond Din, uh, but he cannot contain his curiosity about what his wife does on Saturday. So he peeks on her bathing and sees that she's half fish. And she's like, we had one fucking agreement. I'm glad I signed a prenup because your ass is fucking grass. And she leaves him. And uh, that's and it's it's a good little story about, you know, setting boundaries and uh, it's. There's a kind of this trope of the wife who is either a transformed animal or turns out to be part animal and asks her husband to give her some basic fucking human decency and privacy and then he doesn't do it so she leaves his ass. Uh, there's a few kitsune myths. There's, I believe there's even a like myth of a water dragon and who her son with a ma with a nobleman becomes emperor but don't quote me on that uh the next we're moving on to final fantasy 6 uh and uh we are dealing with goddess this is a deity of the warring triad that appears as a um this is a beautiful woman standing on the head of a much larger goddess trying to destroy people because this is a final fantasy game and uh what kind of jrpg would it be if you're not trying to defeat god with the power of friendship uh during development they proposed using the name of sophia as the name of the goddess which is uh, very interesting um before i get to sophia in folklore i just want to point out that uh again in final fantasy 6 uh, she is one of the last three fights in the final area before you get to Kafka. But in terms of Sophia, uh, there are, we're gonna go into some old, uh, some old religious lore here. So in Kabbalah, 
Sophia is used as the female personification of wisdom and as an expression of God, the female expression of God themselves. Whereas in Gnostic traditions, uh, quote, she is an immaculate mirror of God's activity. And through her desire to, quote, know the Father, end quote, she is cast out of Polonia, which is the Gnostic version of heaven. And she birthed the God who created everything. Uh, this god being known as the Demiurge. So in the Gnostic tradition, um, the best way I could explain the Demiurge and that whole segment of words I just said is, if you go off of the Genesis thing, where in the beginning God created the earth, the blah, 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 the huddled masses learning to live free. Um, I had to do a lot of research on like religious stuff for this because I know sh fucking dick about actual christian tradition uh but essentially the demiurge is a concept that is the creator god and in the gnostic religion sophia is essentially the mother of god and i'm just gonna try to segment segue my fucking way out of this uh next uh ever popular uh final fantasy eight or seven Freudian slip. Uh, I was looking at 8 when I was saying that. Final Fantasy 7. Uh, the game that rocked the world. Um, shout out to my uh, listeners from the First Encounter podcast. Uh, if you want to listen to a person try to go through the entire T of Final Fantasy 7 for the first time while being guided by his best friend since middle school, um, I highly recommend giving it a listen. Season 1 is all about just traversing Final Fantasy 7. Uh, they're currently working on Season 2, which is about Majora's Mask, a game I love for the aesthetic and but I'm shit at playing. So I got two enemies from Final Fantasy 7. Uh, the first one is Scarlet. This is the lone woman in Shinra's board of directors, and she is the head of weapons development. Uh, she's a deplorable bastard um who is here to girl boss gaslight gatekeep her way through life uh she's responsible for the main character barrett losing his arm and hometown and she's the one who built the sister ray cannon which is a massive cannon that fires mako which uh spoilers for final fantasy 7 are human souls so she made a cannon to weaponize the earth's energy and the, the departed souls to blow shit up you don't fight her directly, but she is piloting a mech that attacks uh, along with another board of director, a man named Heidegar. And she battles Cloud in the party in the Plow. I'm gonna fuck. This is a tongue twister. Proud Claude robot. Uh, once you get back to Midgar in the late, in I want to say the very late game. Uh, I believe, and I could be wrong because I haven't actually got, I haven't upgraded to a PS5 yet, so I haven't done the intergrade yet, but I'm like, if I remember the ads correctly, she's also a mini-boss in, in the Final Fantasy VII Remake, when you upgrade to a PS5, there were, they did a special chapter where you play as Yuffie, and you go through a bunch of the events of the, what happens in the remake, which is just the Midgar section. And you have to, um, so you play as Yuffie through it, and I believe she's one of the boss fights in that game, based off of the ad footage. 
Um, I can either confirm or deny that information. However, I'm going to go full politician's press secretary here. Cannot confirm, cannot deny, because I have not actually played it. I have yet to upgrade my P uh, to a PS5, but I need to get my ass on it because Final Fantasy 16 looks so fucking good. Oh my god. Wow, recording in the morning is a different fucking energy. Alright, uh, next. Uh, another Final Fantasy 7 enemy. We have the... Uh, I should have practiced this. Gem Nemzimi. Um, it's a seductive witch. Uh, you find her in the Temple of the Ancients, and um, she's kind of an interesting uh, enemy to fight. I've, uh, I could not find much about the historical aspect of her other than, oh, look, a witch, and she's seductive. Wow. But a fun little thing is that like she has an ability that can ca to cast Confuse, but it only works on the male party members. Which is kind of like, okay. Everybody knows men are stupid. We, we get it. Um, and what's also a fun little thing that you like wouldn't make a lot of sense like realistically, but like is kind of interesting, is that she's often accompanied by poisonous frogs. But if you use poison on her, it's a one-hit KO. Which is like an interesting little trick. Okay, and our last enemy, before we swap over to uh, doing our cavalcade of yokai, um, is an enemy from Final Fantasy VIII. So I should have not said that everything was through Final Fantasy IX. My books go through nine, but I didn't find an enemy in nine that was good, so it's only eight. And this is uh, the big fucking bad, Ultimecia. Um, Final Fantasy VIII is a beautiful game with a convoluted as fuck plotline because there is time travel and when you have to incorporate a lot of different aspects of time, past, present, and future into your game, the uh, it's interesting sometimes as a gameplay mechanic, but it's also incredibly tedious to keep up with as a story. I've tried to play Final Fantasy VIII like three separate times and I've just gotten my brain. I'm getting too old for this shit, he says in his late 20s. But Ultimacy is a sorceress from the future and her plan is to essentially destroy time as we know it. And her plan is to compress the past, present, and future into one singularity. However, by doing so, she would be the only one who gets to survive in that singularity, which is bitshit. Um, and what she does is that there are multiple sorceresses who have the powers over time. You have Ida, Renoa, and Adele. And throughout the game, you have to try to come to terms with fighting Otanesia by fighting each of them one at a time in this form. Until you finally get to the end where you kick her ass and you save time. And yeah, so that is a crap load of... Final Fantasy enemies, um, and uh, after a quick little break uh, to run my own ad, uh, we will move on to the yokai for this episode. Hi everybody, yes, I am trying out a mid-roll. Um, everybody else is doing it, I just wanted to feel popular. Um, this episode is not sponsored by anybody, but um, I would love if you guys would like to consider joining the Patreon. 
uh, at patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales we have three separate tiers the lowest one being five dollars and it would be really helpful if you guys would like to join it um at the lowest t every tier gets you access to a patreon exclusive discord and also gives you access to joining uh the book club uh which i have called we don't talk about book club because why not do a fight club reference on this comparative mythology podcast uh, next week's episode, uh, during this little mid-roll, I will be announcing the name, or the name, I'll be announcing the book for June, so if people want to uh, either read along, or um, if you want to try to get your ducks in a row and uh, join the Patreon and book club, uh, it'll be super fun, and um, uh, thank you for listening to this uh, brief ad, uh, thank you. Alright, back to... Uh, lady monsters uh so for the second half of this episode we're gonna go full on uh, uh just literal parade of yokai which is a, a fun little joke if you uh, remember the original name of the works is the parade of demons so let's see the first one we're gonna talk about is known as the hikeshi baba um, so one of the th uh, interesting things to note when uh, we talk about the different yokai and their names is that uh, a lot of times they have two specific suffixes that denote uh, about them. So like a lot of times we'll hear ona, which is woman, or baba, which is hag. Um, once again, uh, as we remember, hags are... Uh, the monstrous representation of what happens when a in a patriarchal structure when a woman does her job has too many kids and then all of a sudden she becomes this unfuckable old woman because her breasts are sagged from feeding children and her body can't hold its you know youth youthile shape so it's time to throw her out and call her a monster um i haven't done my episode about baba yaga yet uh it's i'm still conceptualizing it uh but again being a forest hag. Hashtag goals. Uh, but the Hekeshi Baba is just an old woman spirit. And what she does is on the new moon, uh, she just kind of like goes around and like puts out lanterns. She's known as like the light stealer. And in terms of yokai, she's not that harmful. She doesn't like really fuck with the person themselves. But what she's doing is, is by clouding the house in darkness, uh, more malevolent spirits can come and fuck with you which is um so sometimes it'll be like you'll have a like a oni and he's like i need to fuck with that house but there's too many lights on and the uh, hikeshi baba's like boo boo i got you and she goes in and she turns out all the lights so the oni can go in and fuck shit up our next yokai is known as the aoi nyoboba so this is a, uh, this yokai is a woman and she's caked in white makeup. Her mouth is a black void. And what it is, is it harkens back to a tradition known as Ohaguro, um, where as a show of loyalty, uh, women and various samurai would blacken out their teeth to show their loyalty to one person. Um, I 
can't explain it super well. Um, if you want to learn more about this tradition, uh, there's a podcast. Uh, oh my god, I'm blanking on the name. It's one I listen to off and on. Um, looking it up very fast. Uncanny Japan is a had an episode about the practice of Ohagoro, and they actually, she actually talks about this yokai a small bit. But the Aonyobu, uh, who has this darkened mouth, she is a is believed to be a high class lady in waiting who died without getting married. So now she's constantly blackening out her mouth and growing out her eyebrows so that she can find herself a man in the afterlife. She inhabits old abandoned homes waiting for a suitor and anybody who trespasses on the, her home is a swallowed whole. Uh, a fun little thing to note and a fun little cultural exchange is that the name owl means blue. And in Japanese, uh, they use blue like we use the phrase green so if someone is inexperienced you say well you're green at this uh the japanese have a similar expression they just say blue instead of green which i thought was a fun little thing um the next one we got another one of those fun yokai who live in the red lake district this is the kejoro uh also known as the hairy whore because they're not holding anything back so what this is, is this is a sex worker yokai, and it tricks men as posing as a one of a like a woman to buy. And then when the man looks at her face and realizes that she's covered in hair like cousin it, he uh, dies of shock. Uh, so the reason this works is that in higher class brothels, the way it used to work in Japan is that they would have this like mesh of bamboo rods and you would see the women from the back and then that's was like the women available for choosing for purchase that evening and so this yokai tricks men because from the back you see this voluptuous woman with long flowing hair and you're like hell yeah and then you go around and you realize it's hair all the way down uh, this yokai also uh from what i found uh, often falls in love very easily with humans or other yokai and by showing their affection she will slice off all her hair and send it to him and then tattooing his name on her body and uh, let me tell you terrible idea this is not dating advice do not send people your hair that feels like a crime unless it's locks alone and then you got to be careful because they have a lot of fucking restrictions and never tattoo the name of a partner on you. Never. You tattoo pet names and you tattoo your children's names. You never tattoo the name of a partner because they could do some fucked up shit and then you're stuck looking at their name forever. Never do it. You tattoo the names of your kids because even if your kids do fucked up shit, you will always love your kids. And you tattoo the names of pets because pets are around for a decade and they, they're beautiful and Freya's looking at me crazy. I'm not getting your name tattooed on me, Freya, because you're also the name of a deity, and that will be weird. But yeah, do not take dating advice from the Ked the Kedjoro. Our next yokai is known as the Dodo Meki, or the Hundred-Eyed Demon. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. 
So Sekian has a little rhyme where it says that long-armed women are more likely to become a dodomaki because the, the bird eyes will inhabit their arms after they do too much. Which is a fun little play on words, and he's quoting a historical piece. However, there's a couple things. First, the work Sekian is referring to, we're not 100% if it's real. Um, folklorists have heard a lot about it. Some people make reference to it. Uh, so it's one of two things. Either it's a fake historical text, or it's a text that we have not been able to find any extant copies of, or none have survived up to this time. Which means, in terms of the Dodomeki, its first um, appearance is in the Illustrated Demon Horde from Past and Present, Volume 3, the work of Toriyama Sekian. And uh, so what it is, is this yokai is a woman who has been punished for being a pickpocket. And the bird eyes that he's talking about is a colloquial name for the hole that is within coins, certain types of coins, because... Um, in certain Asian cultures, uh, the way the coinage worked is that it w it had a hole through the center so that you could tie a ribbon around it. And so instead of carrying them in a pouch, you had it like tied to your waist. And um, so what happens is, is a w once a woman steals her hundredth coin, she sprouts hundreds of eyes on her arms and becomes a dodomeki. Our next one is a kokuri baba. Baba hag. This one is the hag of the house. So this spirit is someone who inhabits um, shrines. And it is said that seven generations ago, the, uh, I already forgot her name, Kokuri Baba, uh, was the wife of a head priest. But here's the thing. Priests aren't supposed to pray. So it's a wife that was kept on the down low who died without people really knowing who her husband was. And so she died in shame. And what happens is she haunts the shrine that her that her husband worked at, eating offerings, and uh, if she can't find any offerings, uh, filleting the flesh of the recently departed and eating that instead. Um, Sekian, in the when he uses kind of a play on the words for this one, uh, the play being the Mikuri Kokuri which is a like generic term for like a bad force or boogie person, which is uh, something that people use in Japan to uh, have naughty children behave. Be like, oh, you better be careful. The Makuri Kokuri will come and get you and clean your fucking room. Uh, it's said that she is even more fearsome than the Daikeshi Baba, which is a woman who lives... Oh, okay, so like... In Greek mythology, you got your river Styx, and most places have a river to the underworld because um, you can either go the, it's probably easier to just go the anthropological route of uh, rivers are dangerous, so a lot of people die from drowning, and therefore it's sometimes just easier to think of the river as a portal to hell. Uh, but the... This yokai is being compared to the woman who is at the end of that river who strips a person naked so that they can go meet with the king of hell and figure out where they're being placed. And she's more ferocious than that. Uh, we just got a line of hags here, so bear with me. 
Our next is the Oshorai Baba, or Face Powder Head. Um, which is... Okay, let's... This is the 1700s that we're dealing with, 18th century. And progressivism is not that great. We're already... I've already pointed out the problematic use of the word hag in most of these. Uh, but this one goes a step further. Ugh, got my nose itches again. Ugh, okay. So... This... But, uh, yokai is based off an archaic proverb even the mountain gods tremble at a woman's makeup in December and is saying that uh, women are so excited for new year festivities that their faces are jacked up because they're not spending enough time on themselves which is incredibly problematic <laughs> um, in some traditions the Oshiri Baba are uh, variants of yokai ona uh, as we talked about in previous episodes, these are the women who are inhabiting snowstorms and um, are only around for the winter. Uh, the Oshiri Baba are people who test the hospitality of the home by being brought in from the cold and then asking for some sake to warm herself up because she they're usually depicted as elderly women. Um, and whether or not you treat them fairly is whether or not you get to survive the evening. And I mean, like, maybe that should be a practice in general. Like, don't be fucking rude if you have a guest. I don't know. Uh, Sekian also claims that these uh, yokai are the attendants of Shifun Senjo, the goddess of rouge and makeup. And thus, they are, like, embodiments of face powder. Alright. Our next one. Uh is not much better about you know being derogatory for a woman it's the jakotsu baba the snake bone hag uh, she is considered a shamanistic figure and is said to carry a blue snake in her right hand and a red snake in her left um it's not much is really said about this yokai or known but it is believed that sekian took a popular derogatory term for old women from the 16, uh, 1760s and 1770s that often appeared in pulp fiction or like certain types of plays and he's just like I can make a monster out of that yeah alright let's have some onas let's have some ladies uh, next is the kage ona this is the shadow woman um, she is, this is simply uh, if you look at the sliding doors of a Japanese home and you see the shadow of a woman, but there's no one there to cast the shadow. Uh, not a lot is written on this yokai because it's not very vicious or does much. It doesn't really in interact with the inhabitants of the home, but she is a pretense that there could be either other yokai in the house or other yokai on their way, which is very interesting. The next one is the Kara Kara Ona, or the Cackling Woman. We got another red light district lady. This one I, I think is uh, beautiful and tragic a little bit. Because what it is, is she, what she does is this giantess will look over walls and door and uh, into windows and um, look at the men who are uh, engaged, who are have bought sex workers and laugh at their dicks. And um, sometimes if a, it's said sometimes that the character Ona, um, makes men wallow in shame and can either, um, they'll either kill themselves 
uh, because they're so ashamed of this giant woman laughing at their dick. Or they will be driven mad because wherever they go, they will hear the Kara Kara laughter. Um, I want to say, actually, it's called the Cackling Woman, but I think this is one of those automatopoeia because each country has a different automatopoeia, which is just a fascinating thing. It's really linguistically interesting, but I don't know enough about it to talk about it at length. Um, but the th reason I find this one so interesting, other than the fact that it just, I just find it funny that there's a yokai that's like, uh, her whole purpose is to drive men crazy by laughing at their dicks. Um, but what it is is that most sex workers in the time of, in the 1700s, the average age of death is mid to late 20s. So the Kakara Ona is known as a, is seen as a giantess who's in her middle age. So you're thinking like 40s and 50s is depicted. And what it's supposed to be is that this anguished spirit is a woman who survived into middle age the trials and tribulations of being a sex worker, the lack of protections, the verbal abuse, the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the the belittlement, the di this distreatment, the looking down upon of society. And in a way, I think it's really interesting how she fights back and she starts tormenting the men who are trying to victimize young, new younger women in the system. And I think, I don't know, reclaim the Kara Kara Ona, I'll fucking say it. Fucking sex workers deserve rights. Sex work is labor. Fucking it should be paid and protected. It's the oldest profession. And uh, sometimes if you need to protect a sex worker, it's I don't think it's wrong to laugh at some dude's dick. This has been your PSA. Legalize sex work. Protect sex workers. Protect women in general, okay? Like, for fuck's sake, it's ridiculous. I listened to a, I was listening to this true crime podcast, and I had to stop listening to it because it makes because true crime makes me sad. But there are t but if a woman's body is found at a scene, a, mur a murdered woman's body is found at a scene, it is not considered a fucking victim for a while it's considered an object in the crime fuck you <laughs> if you want to learn more about women who were victimized and shouldn't have been i highly recommend hallie rubin holds the five which is a book about the uh five confirmed victims of jack the ripper and the entire book is just talking about the women and their lives and the series of events that brought them to that part of London, it doesn't give a shit who Jack the Ripper is, because at the end of the day, Jack the Ripper is just a, a man who preyed on innocent women. Ugh. Getting all fired up. People are assholes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm on a tangent. Alright, next is the Ameona. This is the rain woman. These are women who serve uh, storm gods and bring rain to various locations. Uh, this is another one of those you get a mixed bag of whether they're good or bad, because on the one hand, they can bring uh, rain to a droughted community, which is very good. You know, people need rain. Crops need rain. But <laughs> um, sometimes the Ameona are uh, scouring the village to steal newborn uh, girls from their homes and to take them back with them. Um one way you could okay this is a little weird but one way you can try to figure out if a person that you're running into in the rain is a ameona is uh they cannot help themselves from licking rainwater off their hands uh in every depiction i could find even ones where they're carrying the snatched babies 
they're licking rainwater off their hands. Uh, there is also a belief that women who lose their children to kidnapping, whether it be from a, a Ameona or someone else, uh, can become Ameona in their grief as they uh, are driven mad and will do anything to reclaim any child to replace the one that they lost. And then, finally, our last female yokai. This was the last one in the book, too, so if I do more episodes of Lady Monsters, I'm going to have to get real creative. There are plenty of more female yokai, um, because, again, this book is a collection of books that came out in the 18th century, and there's a lot I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, two female yokai that are out more modern create creations, because one involves the train systems and the other involves... Um, was a part of a huge scandal in the 1970s, but that's for another episode. But this is the Suzuhiko Hime, or the Bell Prince Princess. I know that sounds weird, I'll get to it. Because um, before I explain what this yokai is, uh, it's time for a fun little Shinto creation myth story. Um, so in the Shinto tradition, it is believed that Amaterasu, the sun goddess, uh, she had hid herself into a cave uh, cloaking the world in darkness, uh, which is uh, not so good. So in order to get her to emerge from the cave, there was a goddess known as Amae no Uzume, and her idea was, we'll hang a mirror from the cave so that Amaterasu will see herself in it and will bring light into the world. And in order to get her to look at the mirror and look outside her cave, we're going to throw a huge fucking party and make a bunch of noise. Which worked. And uh, it is said that the dance that uh, Ame no Uzume did was known as the Kagura dance. And this is the dance that is now used in Shinto rites. Um, I don't know how to describe it, so I won't. So what it is, is this yokai, the way it's depicted, is it has bells on its head and is dressed in old and Shinto garb. And it just wants to join the party that Ame no Uzume is holding. Um, but it's not a deity because the depictions of this yokai have it have four bells on its head in like the shape of a cross or like a T. And in Shintoism, the number four is an inauspicious number. So because it embodies these four bells, uh, it cannot join the dance, which makes the yokai very sad because it just wants to dance and make music. It's kind of a bittersweet yokai, actually. You know, some of them are—they're not all baby snatchers and uh, horrible allegories for old women. Uh, but the interesting thing about this yokai is they're potentially intersex, um, which is not the word my book used. <laughs> but again, 1700s—we don't use those words anymore. Uh, because the way it works is uh, Suzuhiko is the bell prince. Hiko is traditionally a male suffix for a name. However, Hime is the term for a princess. So it's another uh, look at this yokai. could be it is a man trying to... Uh, man, uh, okay, so here's the hard thing about dealing with the past. Uh, it's hard to ascribe 
ideas about certain aspects of gender and sex and identity that we have nowadays to ideas and peoples of the past it's an incredibly tricky subject because it's like this back diagnosis is incredibly hard because we can't know for certain how this person how these people actually were so looking at it from my modern lens i am a 27 year old liberal um, one way that it could be looked at is this is a trans woman trying to join festivities and is not being allowed to. Um, however, I don't know the specifics of the Shinto tradition around allowing who does the Kagura dance. I know in all the anime I've seen, it's been women. I don't know if it's specifically a shrine maiden activity or not. Um, but at least... In the book I read and the little bits of tertiary research I did, um, the fact that this person, this yokai, could potentially be intersex is l played down less as the reason it's not being allowed to do the dance, and it's more about the fact that they have the four bells, which is considered uh, bad luck. And yeah, that's the last of my female yokai, slash the one intersex one. And that is this week's episode. I hope everybody really enjoyed the series about um, female monsters and the people who love them. I had a lot of fun making it. Oh, no, okay. I thought, sorry, my recording software did a weird thing. I thought it didn't record that. Uh, this was a lot of fun to research. It was fun to pour through all my different books. It made me realize that a lot of my um, uh, collections of tales and encyclopedias are odd. One of them's a bit shit. I'm probably going to get rid of it. Uh, but it was uh, really fun. I hope everybody really enjoyed this episode. Um, for next week, next week I'm going to do a historian tries to recall the plot. And we're going back into chivalric tales. But kind of with a twist. And uh, it'll be fun. I hope everybody will enjoy it. Um, I will post some like little spoilers here and there, probably on Instagram and TikTok, but uh, before announcing what the new episode is. But yeah. I really hope everybody enjoyed this episode. This was a fun series to make. I could continue to talk about female monsters forever. I find them fascinating. Um, I'd have to do a lot more research and probably get a bunch of different books. Um, but for now, uh, we're going to take a bit of a break from female monsters uh, and from monsters in general in a certain tense. I have a couple, I have the next like three or four episodes planned out. Um, shockingly, I'm usually not this prepared for things. But yeah, um, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. If you want to get in contact with me, as always, you can find me at White Trash Historian, all one word, all lowercase, uh, on Instagram and TikTok. Um, if there, I would love to hear from you guys. And uh, as you can find the Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/CavalcadeOfTales. Uh, episode I'm posting episodes there early, so you won't. You can listen to episodes early if you join the Patreon because I'm getting better at this. And so I can record episodes instead of doing them at, you know, finishing the episode at 11.57 on Monday night for it to come out on Tuesday. Um, I'm getting better at this. And uh, I hope it shows. And I'm uh, really excited to keep doing this with you guys. Uh, all right. That's all for now. Bye.